Father, thank you once again for this morning. Thank you that we are able to be encouraged by your grace and mercy. Thank you for drawing us here through so many different circumstances and so many different means. We are thankful that believers in Christ have the most important thing in common. Now we would ask that you would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin our study this morning by quoting Jesus in two very, very profound statements that he makes. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And oh, how surprised his original hearers were when Jesus, in fact, conquered sin and death by his own death and resurrection. Would have been a surprise to them. Second quotation from Jesus, and this is not before the cross, this is before the ascension. But you will receive, this is to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Likewise, how his original hearers would be surprised at just how he would go about accomplishing that very thing through the apostles. It would be surprising that he, he would say to them, this is what you're going to do, I'm commissioning you. And in fact, the gospel is going to be successful. It is going to go forth. It will accomplish what I desire based upon what I've already done. But how surprising. How surprising. This is going to happen. Oh, it's not surprising. It's through the preaching of the gospel. But it's surprising because it happens through great persecution. The gospel spreads in the book of Acts in a way I never would have thought. In a way, in one sense, other than God himself, no one would have ever thought. And yet when we study the book of Acts, we see God's providence alive and well and working, that he's working mysteriously from our perspective, accomplishing the furtherance of the gospel in a way we never could have imagined. And it happens, yes, even in spite of, or maybe even we should say through the means of persecution, bad things happening to the church leading to the good progress of the gospel. Well, today we're going to be in the book of Acts in the eighth chapter, and the eighth chapter of the book of Acts is something else. <laughs> we're, we are going to see predictably the preaching of the gospel, but not so predictably. We're going to see God's providence in such a fascinating way. When we say providence, it's a, it's a good Christian catch-all word. It means God providing, but it's God working from our perspective mysteriously. God providentially working. So this terrible bad thing is going to happen. Even people sinning, God can then use for something good to come about. Providence. The gospel advances, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, providentially, oh yes, even through sickening persecution that is actually sinful. I hope it encourages you today. I hope your seatbelt is fastened. I hope your tray table is up. We might have some turbulence. Acts chapter 8 is a great chapter about the promotion and proclamation of the gospel through thick and thin, just as Jesus said it would happen. We're going to look at verses 1 to 40 this morning. Uh, it's going to be quite the ride. If you're just joining us, 
Welcome. We're studying the book of Acts and having a great time doing so, seeing how the early church developed and started so that we might be encouraged today regardless of thick and thin as the gospel continues to go forth yet in different ways. Okay, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution from chapter 7. That's Stephen's execution, the first Christian martyr. Saul approved of that. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we already see this interesting, mysterious work of God providentially. Saul, who will be converted, we're going to learn about him in chapter 9. He is far from the kingdom at this point in time. In fact, he's opposed in a tenacious, horrific, sinful way. It's great persecution. And it's being not just promoted by Paul, but he's certainly behind it. He's certainly a leader in all of it. And there's going to be this great, awful persecution. It's scattering. There are social pressures, economic pressures, religious pressures, familial pressures. Can you imagine if you had to leave your home because you believe in Jesus? Can you imagine because you've become a Christian and now the Bible makes sense to you and you can't stay in your beloved city and you can't stay with your family and you might lose your job and your family might have a funeral for you? These kinds of things have happened. Awful, terrible, horrific things. And yet God is going to use them in an amazing way to do just what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. To spread the good news through bad means. Very fascinating. When we read that opening verse, when we read that opening verse and we say, is that good or bad? It's kind of a trick question, isn't it? It's bad because sin is bad. And to be against the people of God, against the church of Jesus Christ is horrifically bad. Yet God uses, like Romans 8 says, bad even to accomplish good. Oh, yes, the bad actors will be held accountable. But he is going to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria, Acts 1-8, even this way. I find it fascinating that if you look at the Old Testament, sometimes the scattering of the people, the dispersion of the people comes as a result of their sinful actions. Well, in this case, the scattering of the Christians, they're not being scattered because of their sinful actions. It's not judgment on them. But I guess we could sort of turn the tables and say it's a different sort of judgment on Israel. And ultimate judgment's coming. coming. We've learned from Matthew, not ultimate, but pre-ultimate, a severe judgment is coming based upon Matthew 24 and 25. In Old Testament Israel, scattering is oftentimes a covenantal curse. Deuteronomy 28, Ezekiel 36. But here it's toward those who are doing the scattering. How strange, how interesting. Well, verse 2 says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Again, we learned about Stephen in chapter 7. He preached a gracious sermon, a true sermon. He was filled with grace, controlled by the Spirit, and yet they executed him for it. And here we say that, see the devout men, not that others weren't devout, but these really stand out, these individuals. They bury Stephen and they make great lamentation over him. So they're devout because they're not fleeing. Right? Most people have to leave. 
But these unique individuals are going to stay and give Stephen a proper burial. They're not going to do it in secret. They're not going to hide. They're going to be brave enough to give him a proper burial is what's going on there. I think that's why they're called devout men. Before we move on, and we'll have to start moving rather quickly, I do want to point out something to you that should be pointed out, I think, especially in our day, when we don't have lamentation, when we don't have funerals, heaven forbid, we have celebrations of life. And I just want to remind you, these are devout men lamenting. These are devout Christian men lamenting. And I want to remind you of this because sin is bad and sin brings death and death is bad. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls it an enemy. So death is bad. And you say, but wait a minute. He saw, in chapter 7, Stephen saw Jesus standing up from his throne, welcoming him. And Stephen isn't described as dying. He's described as falling asleep, which is a beautiful euphemism, a nice way of saying died. But if you're a Christian, you've only fallen asleep because you're guaranteed resurrection because of Christ. I just want to remind you that both things are true, right? Take what you learned from chapter 7. Isn't it good that when believers die, Jesus welcomes them and it's called sleep? That's good. That's right. But death is bad, right? And so the devout individuals lament. They show sorrow and sadness because it's fitting and right to show sorrow and sadness even if you have a greater hope. This is why the Apostle Paul will later say that Christians shouldn't grieve. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. Christians shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And so I have to remind you We're not Christian scientists, which is neither Christian nor science, okay? We believe in death. It's real, not like Mary Baker Eddy. Death is real, but it doesn't have the last word. It's grieving, but not like those who have no hope because we have the hope of the empty tomb and the resurrection. But I couldn't resist, given kind of the confusion. Um, At my funeral... I hope it's not just joyous. (laughs) I mean, maybe we could put it up for a church vote, but (laughs) death is bad. Sorrow is fitting. Tears, lamenting is fitting. It's no wonder we have so many issues. But we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Well, I hope I don't try to keep applying this passage as we go, or it could be a long, long sermon. It won't be, I promise. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. Just think of this wild kind of boar of an animal ravaging, tearing it apart, wanting to destroy it, wanting to to snuff it out. Saul was ravaging the church, trying to destroy it, and entering house after house. So he's tenacious about it. He dragged off men, but not only men, it's, it's for severity's sake, and women, and committed them to prison. Christianity, in his mind, is so utterly bad and blasphemous and terrible that it needs to be stopped at all costs. In one sense, Saul was dead right that authentic biblical Christianity is the greatest threat to self-righteousness imaginable. If Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly 
on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. If he made perfect atonement of sins on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. If he did those things, then self-righteousness is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. The Apostle Paul will have a total 180 turnaround by the sovereign work of the Spirit. And he will say that he will count everything else as loss. Imagine that. And he says this in Philippians 3.9, to be found in him, to be found united to Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But at this point in time, logically, he's right in wanting to oppose the church. If there is no righteousness that can come from outside, if there is no substitutionary righteousness that can be credited by faith, you got to stop these Christians from telling people that they need to trust in a substitute. But in reality, he's dead wrong. Remember, the Christians are accused of being anti-law. They're not. They're pro-law. We trust in the law fulfiller. And they they were accused earlier in the book of Acts of being anti-temple. And Christians weren't anti-temple. They just knew that Jesus is the ultimate dwelling. Jesus is the ultimate place where we go, not the physical temple. But Paul is thinking in terms of not ultimate, he's thinking of the short term. And so he's ravaging the church at this particular point in time. Now, let's just pretend for a moment. Let's pretend that we don't know any better. With this happening, so much for the church. No, no, keep reading. Verse 4, now, like at the same time, get this. You might think it's going to be snuffed out because of what's happening. Now, at the very same time, corresponding with the bad that's happening, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who went out about and they were scattered, they didn't change the message to make it more palatable to people like Saul. They didn't cower and run for the hills and hide and not say anything. No, they were scattered, true, but they went about preaching the word. They were preaching the the, the, the revelation of God about perfect atonement in Christ. And they were preaching the word about Jesus regarding resurrection, preaching the word about Jesus as he's the ultimate dwelling. He's the ultimate temple. He's the one you need to trust in. They can't do it in Jerusalem anymore, but they're still doing it. They're sticking to the script. It goes beyond Jerusalem, just like Acts 1-8 said. But this isn't how I thought Acts 1-8 would have turned out if I would have been there. It's through persecution, but persecution doesn't stop the Great Commission. They went about, remember the Great Commission, literally, you could translate Matthew 28, as you are going. If they only would have known the implications, as you are going, as you're being persecuted, you just keep making disciples. God works mysteriously, providentially. Jesus is building his church, but not the way I would have imagined. I think it's fascinating to consider the fact that these persecuted people, persecuted Christians, have a way of helping us remember what the the message actually actually should be. That persecuted Christians like this help us to remember what the gospel is. They're not preaching prosperity, right? They're not saying, if you believe in Jesus, your life will be better. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have more success at work. If you believe in Jesus, you'll, you know, make a bigger difference in your culture. Those things sometimes are true. But what they're doing is they're going about scattered because they're persecuted and they're preaching the word, the word about Jesus, the word about eternal life, the word about resurrection. 
I think it's important for us to think of that and consider that. Literally, the, it's fascinating. The word that he uses, he uses the, the word for preaching. It says preaching the word. It's good news preaching. Good newsing the word. Is how you could literally translate it. They're good newsing the word. You know what? I've got a good word for you. Your life is going to... No. I've got a good word for you. Guaranteed resurrection. Guaranteed acceptance by God. They're good newsing the word. They're not good newsing themselves. They're telling something good about Jesus. According to God's biblical revelation, they're staying with the good news message. The church father Tertullian purportedly said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I don't know if that's always true. But it's true here. Now, further gospel progress. I hope it encourages you. Despite even great persecution. Verse 5 says, Philip, who we met in chapter 6, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And I want you to know, hear me out, but that's all kinds of wrong if you're a Jew. If you're a faithful, devout Jewish person, you're like, what? What? Who snuck that in the script? What's that all about? He's going to go to Samaria to preach the Christ, to proclaim the Christ. But it's not all kinds of wrong. It's actually all kinds of right. It's actually good because salvation isn't only for the Jewish people. It's also for Samaritan kinds of people. It's also for Gentile kinds of people. Jesus is the savior of the world, all different kinds of people. But you have to know this is, this is shocking. This is meant to be shocking to us. The, the important contrast is he goes from Jerusalem to Samaria and he's telling them about the Messiah, the Christ. The Jews would have thought to themselves, if they're not thinking altogether clearly, which is true for all of us at times, the Messiah is not for the Samaritans. The, the Samaritans are a cult. It's a, it's a cultic Jewish offshoot kind of group. They have the wrong view of Revelation. They have edited Bibles. They have Thomas Jefferson Bibles before there was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Taking out the miraculous stuff. Well, it's not altogether the same, but I got your attention. Only first five books, they deny the rest of Revela the, the Revelation of the Old Testament. So they have edited Bibles. They're considered unholy because they intermarried with pagans as was forbidden in the Old Testament. They have a wrong view of salvation based upon what Jesus says in John chapter 4. It, got, it was to the point where if you just wanted to call somebody a bad name, you just call them a Samaritan. I know that's the case because that's what they did with Jesus. He wasn't a Samaritan. John chapter 8 verse 48. You are a Samaritan and have a demon, Jesus. they said to Jesus. It's just a way to insult people. They're, 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 they're cultic. They're bad. And yet, what do we see here? Going across geographical boundaries, yes, but not only that, again, going across ethnic cultural boundaries, the gospel is going to the Samaritans. Good news for Samaritans, yes. Jesus is good news for Samaritans too. He's the savior of all who would believe. Now for the response to Philip's gospel preaching. Let's go to verse six. And the crowds, with one accord... 
pay, I can't help but think about the one accord thing. They were one accord against gospel preaching. Now, positively, with one accord, they're united and they paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So the very same message that brings about the savage outrage, we want to imprison you if not kill you, the very same message that brings that about also uniquely brings about, oh, there's great joy. There's hope. There's, there's, there's sure hope of acceptance by God. They have much joy, and they're even unified in their much joy. So interesting how the same gospel message that is preached to one leads to hostility and the same gospel message that's preached to another leads to the power of God unto salvation. It's the same message though. Let's learn it's the same message. By the way, let me point out to you, it's the same message. And in case you weren't listening, it's the same message. The church is sticking to the same message. We should remember that. Because God is the one who has to work in the heart, as we'll see later even in the book of Acts. Then comes a bit of an interruption. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. Sometimes he's called Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. Okay, uh, He practiced magic, magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying, you got to get this, you gotta, don't miss this in verse 9, saying that he himself was somebody great. Wouldn't you like to meet his parents? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Saying that he himself was somebody great. Okay. Stephen likes him some, excuse me, not Stephen. Simon likes him some Simon. Uh, verse 10 says, they, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man, oh, make sure you notice this too. This man is the power of God that is called great. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's Romans 1.16. In an antichrist kind of way, in an instead of Christ kind of way. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's what's great, and this guy is some kind of fake good power of God who's self-consumed. Okay, well, pretty pretty interesting, I think. Just Okay, let's move on. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Then verse 12, on purpose, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Who gets baptized? Both men and women who believed. Well, why would they do that? Well, they would do that because baptism is the official sign if you will, uh, of what it, what it is to be a Christian. So when you're baptized, it's a picture. It's the official sign of what it looks like, what it means to be a Christian, because you're united to Christ by faith. And therefore, as we like to say by way of shorthand, when you're united to Christ by faith, you receive Christ and all of his benefits. So like Romans 6 says, you die with Christ. And you're raised with Christ unto newness of life, inseparably so. And so they're baptized because they're believing in Jesus. They're becoming Christians. They're believing the good news about Jesus. And so what do you do after you believe in Jesus like these men and women did? You get baptized. It's 
a no-brainer. Now, if you're wondering why it's good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and some of you aren't wondering, but some of you might be, why is it the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus means God saves. Uh, Christ means Messiah, so that's king, protector, provider, deliverer. So they're identifying with him as their ultimate king, savior, protector, provider. Salvation's found in him, so they're identifying with him as believers. But it also emphasizes the good news about the kingdom of God. Well, he's the king. And if he is the ultimate and only perfect good king, and you're united to him by faith, you're safe. What he accomplishes, he accomplishes for you, inseparably so. I would also remind you that the kingdom in the New Testament is associated with the new creation. The forever ruling, reigning king and the forever lasting kingdom, that's new creation talk. Remember, Paul says, after he's converted, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're in Christ... You are a new creation. That's kingdom talk. If you're a member of the kingdom, you're a member of the new creation. Already, even though you're not there yet. Fascinating, because his work is already done. Well, we better keep moving. Verse 13 says, Even Simon himself, the magician who believes his own press releases, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. The people were amazed by him in verse 8. And now he's amazed. And if I were writing the Bible and making up Christianity and wanting Christianity to look good, I would just leave it at that. Even guys like Simon got converted. Because we're going to see that it doesn't end so well with him. But thankfully I didn't write the Bible and I'm not just trying to make Christians look good. Let's go to verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, remember, they're still in Jerusalem, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, first of all, don't don't read it like, oh, they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not meant to be looked, looked at like that. The idea is that the gospel has now broken new ground. And just as in Acts chapter 2, something new and unique had happened, something unique happened to authenticate it. And here we have something unique happening because we've now gone from Jerusalem, now the gospel has gone to Samaria. And is this a knockoff or is this the real thing? Well, we're going to have official apostolic affirmation by Peter and John that this is unique. Yes, like in Acts chapter 2, but now we've gone from Jerusalem and now we've gone to Samaria and it's the real deal. And so there's going to be unique apostolic Holy Spirit authentication, if you will, like it was in Acts chapter 2. Just ever so quickly, I probably should point out to you that the Spirit had already worked in these people's lives. I know our text doesn't say it, but my Bible is made of more than the book of Acts. The fact that they believed means they're regenerate. Okay? Ephesians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. 
Faith is a gift given by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3. So the Spirit's already worked in their life. So let's at least acknowledge that. Let's also acknowledge that everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit. They have the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So what is it then? The Spirit had to regenerate them, or they wouldn't be believers. Not only that, everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit. So what, what is this, this unique John and Peter? Because they didn't have the Spirit yet? Because they didn't have this unique, extraordinary authentication, like Acts chapter 2, and when the gospel works from, it's gonna start in Jerusalem, unique authentication. Am I saying that right? It's close. You get the idea. And now we're gonna move to the next step, if you will. Boundary, and it's going to happen again, as a matter of fact, something similar when we go to Acts chapter 10 and 11 when it goes to the Gentiles. I have to confess to you, for a long time in my Christian life, I was baffled and puzzled by all of this. Why is it that you have to have the Spirit, but they don't have the Spirit? And is this just some sort of second blessing thing like the Charismatics say? I think the simple answer to that is no. This has to do with not regeneration, not having the Spirit, but the historic progress of the gospel going from the Jews only, then it's going to go to the Samaritans, and then it's going to go to the Gentiles. And when you look at all three of those accounts in the book of Acts, they're all, each three of those are accompanied by unique, extraordinary authentication. I wish somebody would have told me that a long time ago. One commentator puts it this way. At least two, cons- uh, let's see. This descent of the Spirit is peculiar to the once-for-all extension of the gospel across the redemptive historical boundary from Jerusalem to Samaria. Oh, that's helpful. Um, And then I won't go on to read. I could read uh, extensively, but I've already essentially pointed out what happens. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 told us it's going to be this threefold kind of step thing. And it starts in Acts 2, then it goes to Acts 8, and then it goes to Acts 10 and 11. This isn't normal. This is unique. This is extraordinary. That's what's going on here. Let's go to verse 17. In verse 17, it says, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Not for regeneration, not because they didn't have the Holy Spirit before, but this unique kind of stamp of approval. It's not a knockoff kind of thing. Verse 18 says, Now when Simon, who loved himself some Simon, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he probably had a lot of money because he was famous and he had been famous for quite some time. We already learned that. He doesn't offer them probably a couple shekels, but he offers them a significant amount of money, no doubt. And he says in verse 19, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And the apostles say, yes, because we think the gospel could be more successful through celebrities. This is the first Christian celebrity. And I say Christian with air quotes. And we might want to learn a lesson from it. Just imagine all the great things that could happen because he's already famous and people are already calling the power of God and just a short step to say, actually, the gospel is the power of God. And he's here. We could justify this all day long. This will be wonderful. The gospel will sell better because we have a celebrity backing it. But notice what Peter says in verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. What's he saying? You can take your money to hell with you, is what he's saying. 
May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. When you think that something that is only sovereignly, greatly given by God can be bought, gained by human merit, money in this case, you don't understand that gospel. You don't understand the work of God. You don't understand how the Holy Spirit works. You need to go back to go and don't collect $200. And Peter's going to preach to him now in that way. He's going to preach to him like an unbeliever. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, just this is how he preached to unbelievers. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. Wow. I'm so glad he did that. Not because I like the fact that Peter's being harsh and blunt with him. But it's a good thing for us to see God in his providence allowing a man like this to profess faith. And even though I would write the script differently because I would want all of those who profess faith uh, to be success stories. Let's just edit out these guys. In the long run, I'm thankful it's in the Bible. He's not the last one who will come along and make a profession and somehow think it's a way to get more famous or to have more power or to have more esteem or to have more people think he's great because he thinks he's great. This is good to see. I'm glad this is in the Bible, even though it's a bad thing. Verse 23 says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. Oh, that's, that's Old Testament talk. That's Deuteronomy 29, 18 kind of talk. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're not going to help the church, Mr. Celebrity, Simon. You're poison to the church. That's not how authentic Christianity works. Verse 24 says, And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come to me. Sounds, sounds good. It's kind of strange, though, that he doesn't just do what Peter says and repent. Interesting. Providence of God example in the early church. We better keep going. Verse 25 says, Now when they had testified, the apostles, uh, as the apostles did, similar to the apostles, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Again, that wouldn't have happened if there weren't the persecution. And now the Samaritans, those who were in bondage to the Samaritan kind of cult. And now in God's providence, they're hearing the gospel. Now we transition to verse 26. Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. In the Old Testament, it's associated with Israel's enemies, the Philistines. So go there, verse 27 says, and he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, not modern Ethiopia, but modern Sudan. So there was a Sudanese person. It gets more interesting. It's interesting that it's a Sudanese person. But then it says a eunuch. Do I need to talk about that? Yeah. Somebody who was castrated. A court official of Candace. And Candace at this time was an official title name, sort of like Pharaoh. There are all different sorts of Pharaohs. They, they carry that name. 
So this is a queen who's named Candace, among other queens who would have been named Candace. And he's an official of her court. It says, queen of the Ethiopians, queen of the Sudanese people at this time, who was in charge of all her treasure. So the eunuch is a power player, not as in royalty, but if you're in charge of all the treasure, you're trusted. And that's sort of how the whole eunuch thing worked. We're going to trust them with our wives and daughters and children. If you want to sign up for this job and maybe make a lot of money even, potentially, there's one great cost. And this particular individual had paid that great cost. It says in verse 27, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So that tells us something as well, because that's some plus 1,000 mile trip. So he's, he's accumulated a lot of PT. <laughs> okay. He's been around, apparently. He's trusted. He's got means. Maybe he's been doing this for a long time. And he comes to Jerusalem to worship. He's some sort of Jewish proselyte. He's someone who's come to know, to believe in Yahweh, the one true and living God, the God of Israel. And maybe this has been his life dream to actually go to Jerusalem. We're going to see he has Bible scrolls, so he has means. He can read it, so he's literate. He, he, he's a power player, okay? He is the Ethiopian eunuch in verse 28, it says, and what he was returning. So he's leaving Jerusalem now from his thousand mile trip, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, if you're a eunuch, perish the thought, but just pretend with me. If you're a eunuch and you've come to believe in the one true and living God, you have a great messianic hope. And your favorite book of the Bible potentially is the book of Isaiah. If you're a believing person who is a eunuch, you love the book of Isaiah and your life verses in Isaiah are Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 8. Because in Isaiah 56, there's a promise to you as a eunuch, someone who can't go into the temple, who can't worship like other Jewish people can because of what you've done. But there's a messianic hope that someday when Messiah comes, the eunuchs are welcome in the temple. You're like, what? I'm not making it up. Listen, I, this is Isaiah 56 verses 3 to 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. I'm worthless. I'm, I should just be chopped down. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house, think temple, and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, name that shall not be cut off. Strange wording. I won't comment. Verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's temple talk. 
And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Think Jesus in Mark chapter 11 verse 17 when he references that. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. There, there's hope. That's why those verses would have been so important. This guy just traveled a thousand miles and he couldn't go in. But you know what? If you're a eunuch, again, perish the thought, you love Isaiah. No, more so, you love the Messiah recorded in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. Oh, won't that be something? Won't that be amazing? Now, it does sort of beg the question. When I read that passage, it's four eunuchs who perfectly keep the covenant. And how could a eunuch perfectly keep the covenant? Because they can't even go in. They can't. So it can be done in theory, as long as you're perfect. As long as you're perfectly obedient to God's covenant, it'll be good for you. And we can all learn from that, even if we're not eunuchs. Oh, you know what? This guy's ready for Isaiah 53. Because there's a substitute who will perfectly keep the covenant on behalf of everyone who will ever believe. Oh, let's keep reading. This is so good. There is a way through substitution. Verse 29 says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him probably drawn by oxen, not stallions, so he could catch up. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, his favorite book, perhaps, and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Isaiah 53 verses 7 to 8 is what it is. He likes the end part. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to him, to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He drew the connections. He showed him how it all fits together. He did something a lot like Stephen did when in his sermon. He did something like Jesus did in Luke chapter 24 and shows, you know what? Jesus is the answer. He's the perfect substitute. He's the one and only way you can have this great salvation. But no doubt in him, you can have this great salvation. I love the wording. I hope you do as well. He opened his mouth beginning with this scripture. And he told him the good news about Jesus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon famously said, all roads lead to London and all verses in the Bible lead to, to the cross. Might be overstatement, but you get the idea. Let me help you. Let me help you see how this relates to Jesus. Okay, verse 36 says, And they were going along the road, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 38 says, And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, 
and went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing because he wasn't a eunuch anymore? (laughs) He's still a eunuch. But he understands. He understands what we've come to label the already not yet. He's He's a part of the new creation. He's a part of the kingdom. He's come to believe in the king. He's come to trust in the substitute. And so he can rejoice because he looks forward to what is to come for him. Then verse 40 says, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And that would be Caesarea by the sea, along the coast, the Mediterranean Sea, not Caesarea Philippi, which is inland. Acts 21 verse 8 has Philip still in Caesarea. So apparently he stayed there and lived there. So persecution, pressure, horrible, bad, sinful. God uses it providentially, mysteriously. And they keep preaching Christ and the people get, keep getting converted. And now the gospel is gone from Jerusalem where Jesus said it would go, Acts 1.8. And now it's also gone to Samaria and it is going to even go beyond to the Gentiles. Fascinating to just think about how all of this worked and to think about the eunuch and going back to his homeland and the influence that he may have had. The gospel is doing its work. Jesus promised to build his church, as one person said, and everything else is just a footnote. Well, these are the most interesting footnotes I've ever imagined. But if Jesus promised it was going to happen, it's going to happen. And we're seeing it happen before our very eyes. I don't know if you noticed or not, there's a lot of diversity. There's persecution and rejoicing. There's unbelief and belief. And there's spurious belief. There are Jews and Samaritans. Africa, we have an African pseudo-proselyte Jew. There's so much diversity in all of this. But I hope you also noticed there is one unifying factor. And the one unifying factor is the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles and those they send out. Believers know that it's Jesus Christ. And so they keep preaching the same message regardless of the outcomes. They're not salespeople. They're gospel heralds. And they're preaching the good news about Jesus, the good news for everyone who believes. I hope we can learn from that. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for time together in your word. Thank you for interesting early church history like we read in the book of Acts. We don't live then, obviously, and yet we face hardship and difficulty of different measures and means depending on where we live and who we live with and the time we live in. But please encourage us by the witness of the early church here to preach Christ to ourselves and to others, knowing that he and he alone is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Make Omaha Bible Church stronger as a result even of our study today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.